Andrei Rublev, the 1966 landmark by Andrei Tarkovsky, has been newly restored and is now playing exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. The Guardian calls Andrei Rublev the greatest arthouse film of all time and as close to transcendence as cinema gets. Tickets available now. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Nicholas Rapold, the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. There's nothing like a good opening act. This week's podcast is inspired by the release of a newly restored version of Terence Davies' debut feature, Distant Voices Still Lives. For the occasion, our critics went back to the beginnings of some of our greatest directors' careers. Michael Koreski, Ina Archer, and Nick Pinkerton gathered to talk and survey some of their favorite filmmakers and their breakthrough features, as well as discussing Davies' remarkable personal story. You'll have to wait and see which other directors they picked, but suffice to say the name Terence proves to be rather popular. As for me, I will be podcasting from the Venice Film Festival, so stay tuned for the latest from Venice soon. And now, let's go to Michael, Ina, and Nick's conversation. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Michael Koreski. I'm the editorial director here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center and a frequent film comment contributor. And today, my very special guests are... My name is Ina Archer, and I'm the Media Conservation and Digitization Assistant at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture and a contributor to Film Comment. My name is Nick Pinkerton. I am a critic about town and frequent contributor to Film Comment magazine. And to, so today, this was sort of inspired by the upcoming, or at this point, the recent release, re-release of Terrence Davies' Distant Voices Still Lives, his 1988 masterpiece, which is a word I don't use very often, but I'm very happy to use right now. So this was actually the first time this film has been restored and released in any post-VHS format in the United States. It's never been on DVD here, um, or Blu-ray, of course, and it's in this new 4K restoration, and this is Terrence Davies. This was his breakthrough film, his breakthrough feature, his first feature. He had directed a series of shorts from 76 to 83 that became the Terrence Davies trilogy, but this was his first actual feature film. So based on this, we decided this week to talk about amazing debuts, films that kind of um, presented these artists coming out of the gate with some form of their vision completely intact. And, and, this, um, and Davies is especially an example of someone who has this kind of built-in aesthetic it just seems like he knew exactly what film was before he even started making it, actually. And so we'll talk a bit about that movie first and Terrence Davies a bit. And then we'll talk about some of the films that we think were astonishing debuts from filmmakers who either have gone on to have amazing careers or who perhaps did not for whatever unfortunate reason. So just to start off talking about Distant Voices a little bit, Nick, could you talk about your first experience with the film? Oh, gee. Uh, I can't say that anything is immediately springing to mind as it... I, I think I actually watched it for the first time not all that terribly long ago, which is to say maybe four years ago um, now. 
and having some prior acquaintance with the Davies filmography and the Davies project overall. And I mean, as you say, it does have this quality of somebody who as a creative personality has sort of sprung like Athena from Zeus's forehead fully formed onto the scene. And part of why that is um, and there are a few other instances of this that I think I'll be discussing today is that Davies is not, you know, he's no stripling at the time when this movie is made. He's 42 or 43, something like this, has already, you know, lived a life, has already, you know, not only had these experiences, but had a significant amount of time to sort of process, particularly the experiences of youth, sort of pre-adolescence and his, uh, let's say, teenage years. Um, so there's been some time to sort of let this stuff marinate and to sort of stew in it a little bit. And I think you do get a sense of that in the film. I think that's definitely true. And what's interesting about this movie as a debut film is that, um, like his trilogy, it actually is kind of made up of bits and pieces in a sense. Um, if you haven't seen the film, it's right there in the title, Distant Voices slash or comma, depending on who's writing, still lives. Um, because the first half of the film is called Distant Voices, and it's its own discrete 40-minute film, basically. And he finished this and had a screening at the National Film Theater and people from the BFI and from Channel 4 saw this film and they thought, well, this is incredible. It needs to be expanded so this can be a proper feature that we put in theaters. We could actually probably make something off this. This could actually do well. People could respond to it. So because of that, he got the funding to go back and make the rest of it, even though he had never initially intended to. So he actually shot Still Lives, which is the second half of the film, also about 40 minutes, two years later. So when you're watching the film and it, it seems between the two halves that the actors have aged, like it's it's not makeup. They actually have aged. And um, it's it's almost... It's it's because it's only two years. It's 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 almost a surreal thing, right? It's it's kind of you think your mind is playing tricks on you, or maybe they just maybe it's in the costuming, or maybe it's maybe that actor you know has a little padding, but actually this is just them. And so, distant voices still lives is in a sense like the Terrence Davies trilogy, kind of made up of shorts. Even though watching it, you can't imagine it as anything other than this feature. I, my experience with the film uh, is when it came out and when I was talking about having, having not have seen it recently, I wanted to, I was talking about trying to be able to watch it again and you suggested that it, might, it was on YouTube, but then I decided that I didn't want to watch it again because I had such a distinct memory of the film, maybe not a distinct memory of plot and you know specifics but the atmosphere of the film was very particular and in some ways I was thinking about my debut of seeing that film. I also worked at Evergreen Video and I remember when that film was being rented there on you know on VHS and that it was that that seemed very a super sophisticated film, but that it was also popular to be rented. But, um, and I remember the cover and, and those parts of it. And really, I'm glad to have a chance to see the movie restored 
because I have, so I am able to retain this, this uh, kind of memory story that I feel like the, the film also uses that kind of memory story. Yeah, sort of a perfect film to have that experience with. But just to, to mention what my first experience of the film was, which makes it extremely hazy as well, is that it was actually shown to our class as incoming freshmen at NYU in our very first language of film class taught by Richard Allen. So it was sort of mixed in. It's a film that uh, you would assume that most of the kids coming as freshmen in 1997 would never have heard of. Your, the first film we watched was the, was the Birds and then Citizen Kane and we watched Rear Window and The Rules of the Game. But mixed in with these canonical classics was Distant Voices Still Lives. And I remember the reason that we did that um, was because he wanted us to pay close attention to the, to the use of sound. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's I mean, the, the film is basically... Um, it's basically a musical in a sense. And, um, you know, I guess to backtrack a little bit too, we haven't said it, this is, Terrence Davies is the director from Liverpool and he is making this film about his traumatic childhood. And it, but he takes himself out of the narrative. So it's basically told from the point of view of his siblings. I mean, your point about it being something that kind of stayed with you in terms of sort of a texture or an atmosphere, I think is so germane to really what the film is all about which is, you know, there's not an enormous amount in the way of, like, narrative drive at work in it. It's much more invested in, as Davies' films tend to be, in kind of sopping up these atmospheric qualities and particularly going back to the well of adolescence and getting down things very particular about what the texture of a working class, Liverpudlian, Catholic upbringing in the post-war years was like. And not only getting the specifics of that, but getting the specifics of how things could alter in the course of a couple years, how you could get from the... And this, of course, is sort of echoed by what happens within the household. You have this oppressive dark cloud of a patriarch who is removed at one and the same time. You have an England that is going from the immediate sort of rationing post-war period and this very like kind of gray tightened belts period to you're moving ever so incrementally closer to the landing of rock and roll on the mercy side and in England that's becoming ever so slightly more colorful. So in both the like micro of the household and the macro of what the cityscape feels like and how that comes into the house, you know, all of this all of this is reflected in very like minute granular detail. And of course, these are themes that he picked up on in, in, throughout his career. And he, his films, I wouldn't say his films ever got less personal, but he was definitely exercising demons uh, from his childhood. His, his father was extremely abusive in this film when he made Distant Voices just by itself that was a way of working through his feelings about this abusive father. Still Lives was a turned out to be an an also fragmented narrative, but it took place in the period after he was already dead and the kind of frozen lives, you know, the title still lives, they're sort of frozen in time because they've been so traumatized by by the experience of their father. And then he made The Long Day Closes right after this film. It was was four years later, 
but that was him putting himself back into the narrative as a child and um, experiencing the tactile sensations of the world through the eyes of a child. But Distant Voices is a remarkably um, sober film. It doesn't have that childlike point of view, even though, in a sense, he's picking up on anecdotes and things that he heard as a child. It's very, very grim. And it's um, like even the visual, like he they, they shot him cinematographer William Diver they decided to shoot with a coral filter they wouldn't use put any primary colors in any of the compositions except for the red of the sisters nail polish and lipstick because Terrence Davies loves he loved going and getting his sisters nail polish and lipstick so it was the one <laughs> thing that you could that he could um sap to if we're going to maybe start moving into the subject of first films generally I'd like to maybe broach something which I found interesting as I was kind of getting ready to come out here and thinking about what movies that I was going to talk about and quite, you know, quite out of thin air, I just picked a few that I'm very fond of and found that in common with Distant Voices, Still Lives, these were movies in which adolescence or kind of the turbulence of the highly hormonal teenage years was very important. And I started thinking to myself, is this something that's sort of particular about films as a narrative medium? Because when you think of the like classic, you know, Romana Clay, uh, like novel, it's, you know, usually the sentimental education of a young man or woman kind of coming into the cusp of adulthood and entering into the world of ideas, you know, you look homeward angel or you're of human bondage or uh, you know, things of this nature. Whereas cinema tends to skew for first movies, I think a few years younger and seems to be particularly invested in adolescent turmoil. Um, just something that, kind of struck me as I was plucking movies out of the ether. And I think it's a pretty common thing with uh, artists who are working in a more personal vein, let's say, for that first work to go to the well of early experience. But it's, I think, a little unusual uh, among filmmakers that that early experience is as early as it is, you know, as in the case of Davies, this sort of just cusp of puberty moment that he goes back to time and again. I had a similar kind of thought about the, the timing or what kind of um, the memory aspect that um, first time filmmakers or first feature filmmakers. And what I was trying to think of the, you know, which one I would kind of settle on, but I, my perception was of the first filmmaker making something a little bit more contemporaneous to their youth or lack thereof, but you are that an older filmmaker might look back at childhood or adolescence, but I'm almost want to suggest that maybe looking at, I was looking specifically of, of filmmakers of color and women that there might not be the same sentimentality about the, the, the rumbling of adolescence, but a, uh, where the filmmaker is trying to launch their their career, their th that is a, a more mature. I'm starting out my life 
as an adult, as opposed to still being in the adolescence. I, I almost feel like there are some first features, particularly by men, that are very sentimental about this period and that that's a way that they get a chance to, to talk about that. So in, in a film like Distant Voices, that that's how you reconcile this oppressive voice. And then I you know, think of films like uh, you know, Truffaut's films where you see Antoine you know, growing up. I, I, I don't know. That's just a thought I was having when you were saying that. I, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to sort of predicate this by saying that there's so many different kinds of first films. And I think in the modern sense of a first film, it does kind of begin with Truffaut. I mean, certainly... There are amazing debuts that predate that, but because this is a career that is, you know, being struck out on by someone who is so knowledgeable about film history and who has an idea of sort of narrativizing their own role in film history, I think there's a certain kind of debut film that follows that model where, you know, it is, you know, it's your... Um, you know, your big debutante ball, you're like coming out and where you, you know, get everything off of your chest, so on and so forth. It definitely like creates a model, whereas nobody looks at like any number of like studio era directors and looks at their early assignments and says like, Ooh, we have to look at the Whistler to really find out what William Castle was all about. <laughs> like, we just don't apply those, you know, same kind of narratives. And I think it is a little in like selecting first films. I kind of gravitated towards things that are so self-consciously like first films that are big, you know, big rollouts. It's interesting to think also about what really constitutes sentimentality. It's really hard to define that. I mean, 400 Blows is a good example of a film that is ostensibly about a very difficult time of life. I mean, it ends on this famously amb ambiguous note. Um, it, no one would say that was a happy childhood, but because of the way that maybe partly the way the film's been taken in the culture and also where his career went um, and um, and also just like the nature of of yeah, the nature of Truffaut, it does maybe seem sort of sentimental in the rearview mirror. But I mean, when put up against something like Maurice Pilat's L'Enfance New, a first film that seems to be a response to the 400 Blows mm -hmm. in a way, kind of this, this post-New Wave film where you could never mistake it for sentimental. Mm -hmm. I mean, that this movie is as raw as it gets. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a question. I do think, I think, I, th I do think of a lot of films made, especially by um, white straight filmmakers, let's say, male straight male filmmakers as being pretty sentimental, but I'm not, I'm not so sure I'm, I can think of a lot of debut films like that. I think sometimes filmmakers almost graduate to that, that level of um, confidence where, where they think, like, I mean, Fellini's a good example of someone who got increasingly sentimental as he got older. Did I use the word sentimental? Cause I, I, mean, I think I, I might have used nostalgic. Oh, okay. And, and, yeah. and perhaps I was playing off of that and mis yeah. mistook nostalgia for sentimental, which is an interesting mistake that I made because the word nostalgia actually does not mean I sentimental. I was thinking because um, the, well, I, the difficulty of some of those films that you're talking about are, I'm thinking of, um, like would La Talente be considered a first feature and that it's not, um, yeah, and it's not sentimental, but I think there's nostalgia mm -hmm. in it. But yeah, maybe, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't kind of like, did you think I said 
sentimental yeah. when I meant nostalgia. No, no I'm not no, trying to, to no, go there with it. But um, um, but yeah, I think it is. There there might no, be a difference um, between yeah those those two ideas. Well, Davies is a good example of somebody mm-hmm. who has a very complicated relationship to nostalgia. Mm-hmm. He he is incredibly nostalgic. Personally, he's incredibly nostalgic about his childhood. He also thinks it was the worst time of his life. So that's the complicated push and pull of a movie like Long Day Closes especially and sort of Distant Voices to Life. So Distant Voices is much more obviously violent. Um, he's constantly wanting to return to this place of trauma and that's kind of his you know, tragedy in a sense. That's all of our tragedies in right. a sense, right? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that's that's so much of what gives those early films of his particularly the sort of tensile strength is, as you say, that push-pull and that deeply ambivalent relationship with the best worst time in his life. I do have a sense, and this is something that I bang on about pretty frequently, that there is something particularly for that sort of Truffaut generation, that wartime generation, and Fassbender belongs to it as well, who I think you're going to be talking about, where there is a sense of cinema as being kind of an orphan's medium. I think it is a medium that a lot of kids of that generation fell into in some part because of parental neglect, (laughs) in some part because... Uh, they were being shunted off to you know the movies or retreating from a life that, for one reason or another, was a little too much to handle, and it becomes this sort of fallback babysitter, uh, confidant, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, I you can certainly say that of previous and subsequent generations, but it's particularly, I think, felt. Uh, for filmmakers of that vintage and generally speaking like it is a medium that tends to attract unhappy morbidly self-involved youths (laughs) (laughs) spending warm summer days indoors etc i just can't relate at all i don't know what what you're saying (laughs) i mean it's not his first film but i think about woody allen like you know where he started to kind of start looking backwards, although it's not his debut films, but, and then our debut feature. And I was thinking about, you know, what is, what is a debut? Is it, is there, you know, is it a film that reaches a certain level or is it actually, you know, a certain, a certain kind of stylistic thing that carries on because I was thinking, Oh, Spike Lee, I should talk about, um, uh, she got, not, not she don't have it. Um, Garbage uh, can through the window. Bed-stuy yeah. Barbershop. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Do the right thing. <laughs> do the right thing. Oh, you, and oh, so yeah. I immediately was like, do the right thing. And then I thought, no, that's that's not. She's got to have it. Yeah. And so, and and would it be Joe's Bedsty? Yeah. Barbers, you know. But for feature, yeah. So and yet, while he's you know yet making that film again in in a sense in a television um, context, I feel like do the right thing is a film that kind of established how he's gone forward that, that it always sort of connects back to that much more so than um yeah well it's 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 funny yeah it's rare it's pretty rare when the first feature is also the breakthrough film that kind of cements their aesthetic and puts them on the map and everyone notices them i mean terence davies is a good example of that i mean in his own smaller way it it, it 
premiered at Cannes and everybody was just blown away by it. And he was basically on the map in terms of art house cinema. Um, but yes, for, and with Spike Lee, you, you think of Do the Right Thing as his huge first breakthrough. But She's Gotta Have It was actually was it, a pretty yeah. successful film. It mm-hmm. just isn't necessarily maybe the the tone aesthetic that you think of when you think of him. Right. Um, I mean, I guess the elephant in the room that might as well just be addressed is like the the legend of Kane, which rests very heavy on American cinema particularly, but like world cinema generally is that's how I think still to many minds it's supposed to be is you're supposed to come out the gate all guns blazing you're supposed to do it young and then you're supposed to of course continue to have fantastic success rather than the litany of uh catastrophes that plagued wells but it's still very much like part of this sort of foundational mythology of you know how how a uh, young filmmaker is supposed to do it you're supposed to have your like you know cane moment and shock the world uh, and and the filmmaker that i was thinking of who sort of did have that trajectory was david lynch with eraserhead oh yeah mm-hmm. eraserhead being a film that um even though it's an anomaly in all of film history it doesn't feel like an anomaly in his oeuvre it Mm -hmm. feels very much like yes that is the debut film of david lynch and he continued along that track he had variations on a theme his movies looked and felt slightly different but you cannot mistake it for anyone else and and the the craft of that film and and the the what he was able to achieve and realize on that budget in that time of his life just showed that you knew from the beginning that you were dealing with an artist i mean almost an interesting rabbit hole to go down would be instances of first films that are totally removed from what the later trajectory would be these sort of like sort of false start first films and i know none of us actually prepared for this topic (laughs) but that would be an interesting sort of list to put together because i know that there are instances none of which i can think of yeah I'm, I'm, just, I'm searching my mind maybe. Well, when you say false starts like what do you mean do you mean exactly i mean could it be something like um and i, do, I don't mean to denigrate which, which i think is a what i think is a very fine film but when i think of agnes varda i think oh cleo from five to seven what an amazing first film of course it's right. not it's la point court which was made in 1954. And though it's a very historically important film in terms of the trajectory of the French New Wave, it's just kind of a precursor. She's working with documentary elements. It's not really like anything else. It still feels like a warm-up film. Do you mean kind of like a, a warm-up film? Also, mm. you know, there are so many factors that go into, to, you know, Agnes Varda not being able to fund a first film and mm-hmm. it taking, you know, eight more years. I think that... The idea of having means to continue. So I, I don't know. This is kind of related. I, I'm trying to, to stay on that track. But I was also thinking when I was trying to think of who to choose, I was trying to figure out what's the difference between a, a debut and a, you know, a first film that doesn't have a follow-up. So thinking about Terrence Davies, it's kind of like, oh, we had this great debut and continued to make films and does that and I, I maybe it's parsing a little bit of a difference but I, I think it's related to what you're asking it's you know this would Ka- Kathleen Collins you know because she doesn't survive although she did make other films but nothing that you know 
that reached the same level as losing um, losing ground. If she had survived, would she have had the means to make a second film so that you could have this anomalous film that, you know, in, in other words, you does this success for some filmmakers, I think, the success of the first time outing, all the, the resources that they put into it may not, you know, they can't fail. But I think there are filmmakers who can fail and make an anomalous film and then continue to have opportunities to make films, you know, until they make the the one that feels like the debut or you know, the one that, yeah. Another Another fun nerd party game is like <laughs> debut film is the best and everything is like a step down afterwards and there are many instances that you can you can find like of that the person just kind of shot the load oh, yeah <laughs> they had something yeah. to say and they said it very nicely yeah mm -hmm. and there and are other subsequent trying. loads but not of the same mass and volume and viscosity <laughs> I can th I think of a few of those, but maybe that's for a, a different podcast. Yeah. I was actually also going to respond to some, something you were saying, Ina, which was, you know, you were talking about Kathleen Collins and would Kathleen Collins have had, you know, the chance to keep making films had she lived longer? I mean, I'm, I'm sure we can assume not for sad reasons, right? I mean, they're just, the industry is just always skewed white and male and... I mean, I, I, I think to myself, what if Eraserhead had been directed or a film as great as Eraserhead had been directed by a woman? Would they have given her Dune? Would, they, <laughs> would, would producer Mel Brooks have come and said, I want to make The Elephant Man with you and gotten all these Oscar nominations? Probably not. Mm -hmm because it's an incredibly sexist industry. So, and, this, and, and one of the filmmakers that I'm going to be talking about is certainly somebody who was um, sort of uh, the, the industry treated with complete disdain or just disinterest mm -hmm. rather um so yeah you guess we'll never know but i think we could right. probably guess you yeah, know and, and there's more and, like and, a suggestion than maybe a and, question <laughs> and also film history is so riddled with examples of people who made sort of crappy first films or second films or third films but hollywood kept giving them another chance and this yeah. is usually men this oh, is almost sure, always sure. men yeah yeah, I mean, you can count on no hands the number of African-American filmmakers of either gender who are just working steadily through the 70s and 80s. There's just no instance of that. Who, you know, people who are rolling from one project to the next, um, which is obviously uh, <laughs> criminal, but... Uh, well, we should probably take a quick break right now. And I know the suspense is killing everyone. <laughs> so when you come back, you'll discover um, who our chosen debut filmmakers are. Bear with us. From one of the most influential filmmakers of all time, Andrei Tarkovsky, comes a stunning new restoration of his epic masterwork, Andrei Rublev. Ingmar Bergman called Tarkovsky the greatest, the one who invented a new language true to the nature of film. Tarkovsky's Andrei Rublev chronicles the life of Russia's great medieval icon painter. Tarkovsky uses stunning imagery and a dreamlike narrative to explore the ecstasy of creation and the agony of faith. The newly restored Andrei Rublev is now screening at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Tickets are available at filmlink.org. And welcome back. We've been talking about Distant Voices Still Lives, Terrence Davies' great 1988 debut film as a way of talking about debut films in general. And um, so we've come prepared with some personal selections. I think we're prepared at least <laughs> uh, with some personal selections of uh, filmmakers to talk about. And let's start with Ina. 
So I thought about several filmmakers uh, and I brought it down to three and I'm going to commit to one, I think. And I guess my criteria was, you know, I mean, I was going all over the place, but then I thought I you know, would like to think about somebody who continued to make features. So to, to go back what I was talking about before, and that kind of stumped me a little bit, but uh, I was thinking about Oversimplification of Her Beauty by Terrence Dance. That came out in uh, 2013. And, but then I thought, oh, but I'd like to use a woman filmmaker. So I was thinking about Cheryl Dunye, uh, who made The Watermelon Woman, which uh, came out in 1996 and is uh, close to the time of uh, Terrence Davies' film. And then I was kind of like Dee Rees with Pariah. Um, and so I think I'll land on uh, Terrence Nance. But I think that, and then also I, I thought about um, uh, Boots Riley and um, uh, Sorry to Bother You, but I felt like I'd just been speaking about him, but the fact that he was an o- older director. And again, somebody who was, you know, had a mature life before he made his first uh, feature film. And I think they all have something similar going on in the in the films that they made, except for D. Rees, who seems to be the one who's going to who is continuing to make feature films that go into a theater. And um, Cheryl Dunye has continued to make films, but um, on HBO and through television, not uh, theatrical features. And also, it's the same with Terrence Nance. And for you know, and working on random acts of flyness, which I think is you know an amazing extension of um, of oversimplification. It's very hard to to kind of synopsize the film. <laughs> this is very true. Yes, and I feel I feel like I've had to synopsize so many unusual films these days. But it's a, a sort of a collage of a film within. Thinking, it's it's kind of like when I wrote about it. I wrote about the fact that it's almost like the process of thinking, and it's a uh, you know boy meets girl, boy tries to get together with girl. They can't quite get in touch with each other, but he's also making a film about um, his relationship to this young woman, uh, uh, Namia, and his thoughts about her are are articulated in all of these different methods with uh, animation, with um, his kind of revamping what he's thinking about. It kind of goes into a a more sort of celestial kind of um, uh, collage uh, of his thoughts, of the process of making the film, of moments that appear to be documentary where he's um, uh, having intimate conversations, you see his text, and it's very much technically uh, involved with the process of communication. Um, that's kind of a terrible description of what the film is, but if anyone's watched Random Acts of Flyness, this idea of both collaborating with other people and just letting his mind run where it wants to in order to create the film and to use all different kind of methods and techniques and and really being a sort of a multimedia piece, but in a theatrical film setting, is what I think is very interesting about that film, and what relates it to a film like Cheryl's Cheryl Dunye's Watermelon Woman, where she also mixes media within the film, makes artworks that come out of the film uh, in order to create the film. 
Boots Riley has a similar kind of thing. I, I just think the idea of using arts and throw, you, you, when you were talking, Nick, about throwing everything at, at it, I think this, you know, this freedom to kind of take from every resource and pouring it into a film and having it be nonlinear and about oneself and uh, using this artistry that seems very much connected to, especially with Terrence Nance, uh, uh, contemporary communication technologies and the ability that you have with nonlinear editing and um, those kinds of uh, those kind of tools, but still telling a personal story, you know, is um, what made me choose his film to be the, the representative one for this conversation. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a really good point because it really does sort of straddle in some ways. It's very much cut to the pattern of, you know, that sort of Truffaut model of a first film. It's very personal. It's very much about like parsing through actual events in his life some years after the fact. On the other hand, it's almost strange that it's a theatrical film at all because it is so fluid in terms of the forms that it takes and i mean one wonders if he is going to go into you know make more theatrical films or if that's a model that is actually you know obviously he's made many shorts and many things like this but nothing like quite that could be termed a follow-up properly to oversimplification sort of moved on all sorts of interesting lateral paths so it's at one and the same time true to that model and something completely different and something completely 21st century and mm -hmm. completely steeped in new media and how could you watch that film and not think that the career would be unorthodox right yeah. right i remember right. watching it um with an audience at bam and the way that film was structured um i wouldn't say it's it's ever at any point conventional but the first um, maybe 15 or 20 minutes are relatively playful and sort of experiential and anyone who's lived in Brooklyn for a while can maybe relate to the, you know, the day-to-day -day travails and the subway jokes and, and the relationship patter. And, um, and then at a certain point, it just takes off into a complete, just takes a sharp left turn and it just goes into this really subjective headspace. And he's, like you say, he's using all these different forms. But I remember watching it with that audience and everyone's laughing and enjoying it. And they're like, oh, what a, you know, what a great movie. We've, we've chosen a great movie to go to today, haven't we, friends? <laughs> and then everyone just kind of stops reacting to the screen. And I don't, doesn't mean that I don't think they're having fun anymore, but I, I, he seems like a filmmaker who's not, and I know now from watching Random Acts of Flyness for sure, he's not there to hold your hand and make you feel okay about what you're watching. Right. He's challenging you. He's doing it playfully, but he's challenging you. Um, there, are, I've seen the first two episodes of Random Acts of Flyness, and it, it, I, all I can say is I'm very impressed that HBO is funding it. Yeah, I think that yeah. it's really daring stuff. And I think he's um, he doesn't hold hands and. Um, and he doesn't hold his own hand. Like I think he's also self-critical, in a way that is uh, instead of it being about oh boohoo what you know happened to me. Not just not to characterize anything that we've been talking about, like feeling sorry for oneself. But it's I I think what keeps it from feeling overindulgent is uh, that he will kind of call himself out. Uh, you know, when he's sort of sinking too much into his own thoughts and his projections onto the people around him, the, the women that he's interested in, in the film. 
Yeah, there's sort of a funny version of that in the first episode of the of the series, right? Where he has right. that extended joke about um, it was John Hamm is a, is a guest and he's talking yeah. about the you know the disease of whiteness or how to cure of whiteness, and it, it goes on and on and on, and, and then it stops, and then you see Terrence Nance at the uh, at, at, the, at, at editing, the laptop, yeah. and and he starts to have these kind of pop up IMs where someone is kind of challenging him and saying like, isn't this tired stuff? Shouldn't you be focusing on yeah, blackness, we, not whiteness? Black, yeah, <laughs> really, really interesting. Um, and then the second episode, I think, just goes off in this completely different direction. I was really kind of yeah. amazed by it. The musical. Becomes a Peter Pan yeah. musical. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a, an interesting balance that he strikes between, I think, like a fairly rigorous self-critique and also a disinterest in self or like a ability to sort of step back and almost hit a cosmic note and get completely... Not you know. Not only do we get inside his head, but we also get a sense of how ultimately futile <laughs> the, this like uh, running of the gears inside the head is. So I think that goes a long way towards snuffing out any like oh woe is me ish qualities. Mm -hmm. uh, there's you know everything's leavened with a very robust and extremely fucking weird sense of humor. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and it does feel like any everything anything he makes could be presented in any way. Like you were like you were saying, one of you was saying it that it didn't seem like this should necessarily be a theatrical feature or that it mm -hmm. could have been something else. It's surprising that it well, played in theaters. It's I definitely mean, many, straining but. at the form throughout and maybe that's kind of what you were picking up on at your screening, this yeah. sense of like something that is actually actively like bridling at the feature format that it's uh, been put into. Yeah. And because of that, it really, you really do get the sense of this career could go anywhere, which is really exciting, which is, um, I think makes them a really great choice to talk about for this particular oh, subject. <laughs> it's, uh, and that he, he's, he made the film out of something else. You know, that there was an existing film that he kind of built on that film, which I think is, Interesting, especially when you were talking about uh, Terrence Davies making the first part of the film and then having it be funded by television mm -hmm. to in order to create the rest of it. And it seems, you know, I don't know if Terrence would do another feature at this point because because HBO is making it, making the possibility of being able to be expressive in this nonlinear way and... Um, and maybe that's the, you know, the Kathleen Collins um, solution is that you don't, to create a feature film is not really the, the goal anymore, or, you know, and not the model. And that might have a, a big, that is freeing in some sense. Like part of me feels, you know, I want to see more features by, by Terrence, but maybe you don't have to indulge in the struggle anymore to try to, you know, to, you know, the things that you have to gain mastery to do these big films in order to continue to make the films that you want to do or, you know, the old school where, you know, John Cassavetes would have to work and act and then he could make the kind of films he wanted to do. But now for some of these newer, if not younger filmmakers that they have other options, really. It's Which true. Which makes me sad because I would like to see, you know, it's great scene things in the theater <laughs> and, yeah. it is but at least i mean you know at one point 
you know, maybe Terrence Nance wouldn't have been able to make anything else at all. So right. it's it's very exciting that he's able that he has a nice budget to do something that's really different and experimental. I mean, again, I think it just speaks to the particularities of the talent set that he has. That it's like I'm interested to see what he can do in terms of like net art or new media work which i you know i know he's more than dabbled in whereas there are like particular talents which are not greater or less but just don't have that kind of lateral range Mm -hmm. at all like there are some filmmakers who are probably best suited to being pinned in by the feature Mm -hmm. format whereas i think he has the kind of morphability to plug into a lot of different moving image formats and do the thing that he does, whatever the hell that is, (laughs) and do it well in a lot of different formats, which is great to have in your toolkit as as an artist, like to have that, like, that again, liquidity is just the term that like keeps coming to mind. While it came into my mind, I think the other tool that he has is collaboration and that he really, truly collaborates and using animators and other filmmakers having using parts of their films. Um, is it Francis Bodomo uh, who made uh, Afronauts, I think, is working on um, random acts of flyness. But his he I think Terrence is also good at pulling together other filmmakers and having that move through him mm-hmm. so some of that liquidity is also pulling other people along um and, and and able to kind of combine work in this collaborative way that i think is you know while he is the author <laughs> in other ways he's also working very much with other people and, and and melding not only technologies but uh other voices literally into his Work. The atelier model, mm-hmm, taking mm-hmm. it back to the yeah. Renaissance. Yeah, his his brother I know does a um, lot of music. Mm-hmm. Nor- Norbus Junior, I believe right. is the name. Yeah. Um, well, we've talked about Terrence Davies. We've talked about Terrence Nance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nick, who would you like to talk about? Well, I'm gonna, I'm going to talk about another another figure who has has crossed over into new media. A uh, successful VR artist who many years ago used to be a filmmaker (laughs) called Terrence Malick. Uh, And another person, I think Badlands, the 1973 debut, is an interesting movie to talk about because on one hand, it does, I think, sort of fit that model that you described with Eraserhead by another AFI conservatory uh, grad um, in that it does seem really distinct. You do see it stamped with what will become a very recognizable authorial personality almost from the first frame. And at one and the same time, because Malik is somebody who has evolved or depending on who you're talking to devolved so consistently with, of course, the gap years taken out through the course of time that it also seems like a real outlier in some ways. Firstly, of course, compared to the latter-day works, it's a fairly straightforward movie, uh, a thinly-veiled retelling of the fugitive love affair between uh, Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate, who uh, blazed a trail through the 
northern middle west in the 1950s leaving uh, bodies along the way a uh, story that obviously left a mark on uh, young mr malik who was a boy in those years it's interesting you brought up michael the idea of a sort of response movie or uh like a, a film that you can kind of see in some respects as being made as a rejoinder to a movie because Badlands seems to me another instance, um, and I think this can be said of another very great first film, Barbara Loden's Wanda, another instance of a kind of rejoinder to Bonnie and Clyde, which is such a important kind of epochal movie for the history of New Hollywood as we understand it. And in fact, uh, Arthur Penn uh, was something of a kind of mentor figure to Malik. He's thanked in the closing credits. Rewatching, just looking at the opening, the first shot in the movie, the introduction of Sissy Spacek uh, sitting on this iron bed stand, shaking hands with uh, her dog uh, while you hear this sort of true romance uh, voiceover. It seems so close to the. Um, introduction of Faye Dunaway and Bonnie and Clyde just stuffed up in this uh, big old house, absolutely idling the days away, waiting for something, anything to inject her life with some kind of excitement, brio, adventure. And, you know, in the case of Bonnie and Clyde, it's the actually very gorgeous young <laughs> Warren Beatty in the case of Badlands. It's a pigeon-toed, weird <laughs> Martin Sheen <laughs> wearing double denim and mumbling strange cryptic asides to himself. <laughs> and I mean, this is the other thing that, and I think that Malik is very, very often funny, funnier than he's often given credit for. I'll just mention the Sedgway shot in uh, Song to Song. Um, <laughs> But this movie is fucking hilarious. <laughs> Malik's cameo itself. What's that? Malik's cameo yeah. itself. Yeah. But I mean, and it's funny because apparently the movie was kind of dumped. It was a independent production, the like classic 60s and 70s independent doctors and dentists fundraising thing. Uh, then distributed by Warner Brothers, where it was kind of dumped on a double bill with the uh, Blazing Saddles. And whatever one thinks about the like Mel Gibson or Mel Gibson, Mel Brooks <laughs> filmography, like Badlands is 50 times fucking funnier than Blazing Saddles. It is hilarious. I was rolling while rewatching this movie. Um,. The first line that Martin Sheen has, give you a dollar to eat this collie. <laughs> <laughs> Who comes up with stuff like that? <laughs> um, and like, you know, later in Days of Heaven, famously, there's a thank you to Red Fox in the end. And like, there's still, there's still a fair number of like gags in there, but this is just nonstop <laughs> hilarity. <laughs> um... And something that I don't think is ever deployed to the same degree by Malik, because this is definitely the most screenplay-driven of, or rather, 
it is the Malick film in which one most senses the existence of a screenplay, and the dialogue is extremely wrought and ex- like indicative of an incredible ear for like weird American hillbilly vernacular. There's so many like interesting phrasings in it that just stick in your craw in a way that were it a writer less familiar with the lingo that he's using, you would not get. Now, you know, if uh, you have Martin Sheen saying, what if I was to, what if I was going to shoot you? That doesn't stick in your craw, but suppose not to shoot you. How'd that be? I think of that every week of my life. <laughs> um, I was hoping for an example. I was yeah. yes. <laughs> heard the news kit. It's in all the headlines. You've been fired. Uh, <laughs> it's absolutely the, the most quotable movie ever written. Uh, <laughs> and I could really, really go on for a long time. So it, 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 it you know, one in the same time, like it feels like a Malick movie, but. I don't think you'll ever see something that kind of is moved forward by the dialogue or rather because there's not a hell of a narrative push like in which the dialogue plays such a heavy role. That being said, even in latter day films, he does always have a fantastic knack for turns of phrase for these sort of haunting turns of phrase and for being able to sort of twist a line in such a way that it gets a hook in you and it's not going to leave you. I mean, I always point to in Thin Red Line, if I never meet you in this life, let me feel the lack. What a weird way of expressing that sentiment. And because of its very oddness, uh, you know, 20 years on, I, I find it still popping up to the surface of my brain pan pretty frequently i just think it's amusing and interesting to be talking about malik in terms of dialogue and writing and (laughs) witticisms or tossed off you know bits because i think most people probably think of him as a purely visual filmmaker yeah so it's an interesting way of looking at him like when i I mean i think of i've been thinking more of his late films i guess recently and those are not films uh most people would think of as dialogue heavy or driven well i mean it's interesting to just Looking at that first half hour, there's a lot of real short, like, piquant kind of squib-like scenes. There's not many scenes at the opening of that movie. It kind of opens up in the stretch a little bit. And if it has any, like, cardinal sin, it's just that it is too good too early to entirely deliver on that level of just pleasurable stimulation for the entire length. Um, Like the first half hour of that movie is a pure level of distilled bliss that one very rarely accesses. Um, But, you know, even at this point, there's not a lot of traditional laying out of you know, exposition, you're getting the characters, but you're getting them in very, you know, strange ways. Uh, You're getting, of course, SpaceX voiceover, which is this one very weird voice, which is, you know, clearly cribbed from close reading of fan magazines and, you know, girls' own romance stories and things like this, which is applying this very sort of 
florid and kind of weird formal backwards running diction to what is by any measure actually a pretty sordid and weird romance between a 14 year old like drum majorette and uh pushing 30 uh guy who throws trash for the city <laughs> and then you have um the the uh kit carruthers character uh martin sheen's character who's doing this slightly off james dean impersonation with all of the like all of the usual affectations turned up to 11 the like you know classic james dean putting his hands and his <laughs> armpits to puff up his like biceps all these weird little cock of the walk like mannerisms and the most ridiculous fucking pompadour in all of cinema <laughs> um yeah my point i have absolutely no idea just i mean the mere the mere discussion is uh sending me into proxisms <laughs> of pleasure oh i mean malik is certainly somebody who did feel because of Badlands felt like he emerged sort of fully formed. Like, mm -hmm. like you say, it doesn't let me sustain. I agree with you. It doesn't sustain the, the kind of aesthetic bliss of the first half hour. I've always felt it goes kind of slack at one point, yeah. but I mean, you're watching a film by a new kind of artist. You can tell right away. Well, I was thinking about that too, is do you think that that's kind of common to these debuts where they can't sustain and in part because it's a first time filmmaker, I can't think of any of the ones that I, that I was considering that I felt like it just like carried me all the way through. You carry mm -hmm. through because there's a lot there. Maybe the balance is different, you know, that it, it might yeah. have, I just, you know, I just wondering if something about in some sense, novice filmmaking or going from making shorts to films that are longer or sustaining the, st the strength of the, yeah. you know, the thing that pulls you in, if that's something that's kind of, what endemic to making uh, longer works. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, 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 when you were talking about the, the sort of genesis of distant voices, still lives as a feature, I thought of uh, Panther Pachali because I believe that was another film that mm -hmm. had a sort of segment that was shot before anything else, which is the segment with the train going through the countryside and that seems to me like the most like lucid and perfect piece of filmmaking in what I consider to be a very, very good film. But I mean, the issue of like films sustaining is I always think of that. And there's like a tossed off Manny Farber line where he says something to the effect of the, on, the last movie that's sustained all the way through is Musketeers of Pig Alley. Mm. <laughs> um, Coming way back. Um, yeah. Which is like, yeah, I don't it. I find it hard to take films to task too much for like just being deliriously wonderful and then merely very good for some of the time. <laughs> it's like, I'll take it where I can yeah. get it. Yeah, it's true. I would say putting aside debut films at all, it's hard to name any yeah, any well. film, right, that that sustains that level all the way through. I, I mean, I would make the case that, you know, the films that I held in the highest esteem, let's say like, your, your Jean Dielmans or your 2001 Space Odysseys, you know, work at a very high level from shot to shot, but it's extremely rare, right? And, to, and you know, well, Ackerman is somebody I thought of talking about today, um, but then it, it's, it gets into that fishy category also of like, what's a feature? What's, is Hotel Monterey her first feature? It's about 55 minutes, I think. And it's, it's obviously an avant-garde film. Or is it Je Tu Il L? 
is that a feat? I mean, it is a feature yeah. film, but then but John Dillman came so like, close. It's the flatness is so much a part of it that like it 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 would almost be a betrayal of the conception for it to have any sort of spikes whatsoever. Yeah. Like, but to be able to sustain that is just it's one of the marvels of film history yeah, that she yeah. sustained that level and to to feel like you've been on a, an odyssey mm-hmm, <laughs> after mm-hmm. watching that film when you're watching something so flat and so consistent and repetitive. Um, the taking taking this you know structuralist ideas and putting them into a narrative into what is sort of I'm not gonna say it's a mainstream narrative it's, it's a narrative film it's mm-hmm. a thriller yeah it is, <laughs> it is a yeah. suspenseful film <laughs> I was gonna say one more thing about Malik actually By all means. which is that um, it's interesting to talk about him in terms of debuts because I feel like he's constantly making a first film yeah. over and over again <laughs> right I mean I, when Thin Red Line finally came back out after all these years it felt like his first film again The Tree of Life felt like his first film again and mm-hmm. certainly this l- late period these you know <laughs> if you can call it that the Two the Wonders and um, Night of Cups and Song to Song kind of feel like he's once again just kind of rebooting his career and trying something new he's, he, he's Seems like a fresh young filmmaker, whether, <laughs> yeah. whether you like what he's doing or not. He's doing something different and new every time. Yeah, I, I will say also one thing that struck me upon returning to Badlands is the degree to which the one of the running themes of Malik is just like fucking off and quitting your job. Like mm. this one starts with, uh, you know, Kit Crothers just basically walking off the job, throwing trash for the city, saying, I done throwed enough trash for today. <laughs> <laughs> um, like Days of Heaven, of course, is just Richard Gere getting fucking fed up with working at the <laughs> mill <laughs> and dipping out. Um, there's a wonderful, uh, maybe I'm making too strong a case for it, but a movie I like a lot that Malik had a hand in screenwriting called uh, The Gravy Train, a.k.a. The uh, Dion Brothers, uh, written under the... Uh, pseudonym David Whitney, uh, a Jack Starrett film, which starts with basically the opening scene of Days of Heaven five years before Days of Heaven. Stacy Keach just like throwing it all in. And I wouldn't say that like Malik exemplifies the kind of adolescent energy that uh, I was talking about earlier, but in this respect at least, and in I mean, maybe this is part of the always making a first film uh, quality, but there is like a a great through line of take this job and shove it sentiment that runs through uh, Malik, uh, which I think is powered by that like Whitman-esque loaf and invite my soul, like desire just to like get the fuck out of Dodge. Um, and it's all, again, right there in some... Uh, prototype form in Badlands. It's a good sentiment for a filmmaker to have throughout their career. Just, yeah. can I just please stop yeah. working? Yeah. Oh, here's Which he film. famously did for 20 years. Right. Um, and a, a director that I wanted to talk about um, today, well, for, first of all, like Ina, it was hard to kind of zero in on somebody. There's so many good choices. I thought of talking about Jean-Pierre Melville, whose Le Silence de la Mer, I think, is one of the most astonishing debut films I've ever seen. It doesn't really feel like anything else anyone's ever made, let alone the rest of his films. And what's interesting about that film as a first film is it kind of, rather than playing off any cinematic lineage or any 
experience he had himself, it just kind of played off um, his ideas as somebody who fought in the French resistance. Um, but it's such a strange and amazing film. Um, and I really shouldn't say too much about it because then I'll be here all day. Or I was going to talk about uh, Fassbender because Love is Colder Than Death, his first film in 69 was... Um, you know, I know we used the word uh, sentimental earlier. <laughs> All the films I'm choosing are extremely unsentimental, especially um, Fassbender's first film, which was famously booed when it debuted at the Berlin Film Festival. And, um, and even more famously, he clasped his hands in victory <laughs> when they booed him <laughs> and gave a very contentious press conference. And thus his career was born. Um, he had already made some shorts that had been rejected by the Oberhausen Film Festival, ironically the festival that, you know, where they signed the Oberhausen Manifesto and wanted to regenerate the national cinema. And they said, well, yeah, but maybe not that guy. So, of course, then he went on to make, what, I think 10 films in the next two years. So he was right out of the gate. But... I decided to talk about somebody who maybe a lot of listeners don't know at all, because I think that she deserves a little bit of um, time and space. Um, her name is Lynn Littman, and uh, she's an American filmmaker. And she so she won an Academy Award in 1976 for a documentary short called Number Our Days. And then a few years later in 79, she... Um, was part of something that should be more famous, which was that it was, they were called the original six and they were part of the DGA and they were six women and they started something called the WSC, which is the women's steering committee. And they basically were demanding equality and they were demanding jobs. And they had done a, in 1979, they had done a survey and realized that, um, and this is an incredible little um, fact, 0.05 of the hours between 1949 and 1979 uh, logged by DGA uh, people were women. <laughs> 0.05. <laughs> and, and today we're up to 0. Oh, yeah. 0.07. <laughs> there you go. So we've really <laughs> moved a long way. Come a long way, baby. So they were, spe yeah. so they were speaking in 1979 about, uh, there were, and there were five other women because they were called the original six. They were speaking about gender discrimination. These were TV directors, short documentary short directors, not particularly well-known then, not particularly well-known now. Um, and then they even, through the DGA, they brought a lawsuit against studios in 1983 lawsuit was dismissed on technicalities. What a surprise. But that same year in 1983 is when Lynn Littman released her debut feature, which was a movie called Testament, um, which is a film that I don't know. Have you guys I actually seen, seen Testament? No. So anyone who's seen Testament never forgets Testament. Testament was made around the same time as The Day After and Threads, which were these films about the possibility of nuclear holocaust during, you know, Cold War, Reagan era. Testament, instead of taking like a macro view and talking about the actual, um, like the, po the politics of it, or, you know, if it happened, where would it happen? When would it happen? It kind of just scraps all of it and takes place entirely in one house and one street. Um, and actually it was shot in Sierra Madre, California, where Invasion of the Body Snatchers was shot, the, the Don Siegel Body Snatchers. Um, so basically, it's, so it stars Jane Alexander, a wonderful actress. Um, she was in The Great White Hope and All the President's Men. And she, it just starts like any other film, like any other 80s domestic drama. She wakes up in the morning, she's taking care of the kids, there's three kids, husband's going off to work. 
like it, any other day. And it just starts to kind of these, 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 these kind of like mundane daily things just start to accumulate. And it, you, it's just extremely low key film. You don't really know where it's going. It just seems to be naturally representing an American domestic space. Um, and then the kids are watching TV, the screen goes fuzzy. You get a little tiny snippet of um, a very alarmed news person saying that they've lost touch with the East Coast. A white light through the room, it's done. They don't know what happened. So the rest of the film is, uh, oh, and the father had gone on a business trip. He had just recently said, I'll be home by dinner. You never see the father again. So the rest of the film is the mother taking care of the children and some neighbor children who whose parents never came home, going to town meetings, trying to figure out how best to procure food and gas. Um, and it's as succinct and as raw as it sounds, it just starts to track the slow decay of the community and the actual death of the children and and eventually yeah, the I'm sitting, uh, you know, visually, if you were watching this podcast, I'm sitting here like nodding and, and staring at Michael because I have seen it. As mm. soon as you said Jane Alexander, I was like, wait a minute. And it traumatized me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. completely. It was, it was You'd actually and, blacked it out. Yeah. Open. Yeah. I think I was like, yeah, never saw it. It traumatized yeah, ooh, everyone yeah. who saw it at a certain yeah. age. And actually it was theatrical release. So Lynn Lippman had read a short story in Ms. Magazine called The Last Testament. And she immediately wanted to option the rights. And it's written in this very kind of terse diary format, which in the movie kind of does that as well. You hear a little voiceover. Sometimes you hear, you know, she says, May 31st, you know, we've run out of food kind of thing. So and that, that is taken somewhat from the story, even though it's much more expanded. So um, she, and she produced it. She wanted to get this film made herself. It, it actually was picked up by Paramount Pictures after it did well on the festival circuit. It was released into theaters. Um, and then it was shown on television. American Playhouse, I believe, showed it. And then once it was shown on television, anyone who happened to have seen it yeah. was traumatized by it. <laughs> and anytime I brought it up to someone, it's like their face goes white. Um, but I mean, it's it's an incredibly pure, distilled vision of 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 this kind of you know nuclear holocaust. This 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 ever present threat that you know I would say we still sometimes feel yeah. <laughs> with the current president um it's it's a film that's about as gray and ashen an american film as you could american mainstream narrative film as you could ever hope to see lynn Littman, unsurprisingly perhaps for many reasons never directed another theatrical feature this film actually even got uh, it got an academy award nomination Hmm. for jane alexander so this was not completely unknown so for the fact that um, for the fact that for th- for that to be the case, and for her not to have had many other opportunities, and trust me, I've 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 spoken with her and mm-hmm. uh, in a Q and A, and I've read interviews. She has many ideas, many things she's she's wanted to make over the years. She ended up making a couple somewhat acclaimed television films in the '90s and um, a couple other documentary shorts. But that was basically it for her theatrical film career. Again, like not a small film. Kevin Costner and Rebecca De Mornay, very young, play a tragic young beautiful couple in the neighborhood who lose their baby. Um, there's Lucas Haas. This is his first okay. film. Remember Lucas Howes from Witness? Yeah, this is yeah. this is his first film. And uh, 
some of the imagery around that child in this film will stay with you for the rest of your I life. I wasn't sold until Lucas Haas. <laughs> <laughs> but you remember Witness? Yeah, he was the child in Witness. Witness. Okay, okay. I have, more, more vividly, I remember the Mad Magazine parody Witless. <laughs> I don't think there was a Mad Magazine parody of Testament. I think it would have been considered a little tasteless. I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, she, I bring her up because she's uh, she's very different from the other directors we're talking about yeah. here. It was like a great debut film that ended up kind of staying its own singular anomalous thing because she didn't end up having a film career otherwise, even though she also has this really interesting history um, as an outspoken figure, an outspoken woman in the film industry. So why not Lynn Lippman if we're talking about Melville yeah. or Terrence Nance <laughs> or Terrence Davies? Why not? Yeah, you did it. Yeah. It's already <laughs> happened. There's no taking it back. Because we, then we couldn't cause the podcast the view from the Terrences. <laughs> We're going to call it that anyway. <laughs> there are quite a lot of Terrences to talk about. And actually, I did. I did. I was hoping that we could talk about Terrence Young only because <laughs> the first film was Corridor of Mirrors, which, oh, yeah. I mean, can you imagine that being a first film? I don't know if you've seen this. Terrence Fisher could have also been. Yeah. Terrence Fisher as well. Fine subject. We'll have to come back for part two. <laughs> um, well, I think we're running out of time here. So as the last thing, if everyone could go around and talk about the last film they saw that was not a film that they talked about on this podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh so for me, it would be Symbiopsychotaxoplasm, uh, take one. And um, I feel that it's the first time that I've seen it because the first time I've seen it projected in a, a theater with other people responding to it. The soundscape was completely different than I ever realized, and it was an amazing experience. So, and I was there, and you're yes. and you're being modest. You introduced the film too. Yes, I did. <laughs> um, anytime that movie shows, I I go to a theater yeah, to see it because definitely. I love seeing it with people. I love picking up on when the audience suddenly starts to get it. They start to shift, and they start to really enjoy it, and they start to laugh and enjoy themselves, and then it's just. It's just applause and laughter for the rest yeah, of the film. Yeah. <laughs> it's the last thing I saw or the last thing that I saw and I liked? We do the last thing I saw now. So oh, okay. <laughs> so you have no choice. Man, I'm watching, I'm watching movies all the time, man. <laughs> <laughs> this gives us a chance to talk perhaps not as positively about something. Uh, okay. I mean, the last thing that I watched that was not discussed on here would probably be Patrick Tam's 1982 Nomad, um, a Hong Kong director who was sort of a mentor figure for Wong Kar Wai uh, and who has a really distinct kind of pop art inflected visual style and you can see a lot of kind of nascent Wong in what he does. Uh, I'm a big fan of his film. I think the film immediately preceding this called Love Massacre, which was shot in large part in uh, Los Angeles. This one's a very strange kind of roundelay of young romance uh, in Hong Kong which then takes a fatal turn in the last reel when one of the characters' boyfriend, who is a defector from the Japanese Red Army, uh, arrives and is followed by some uh, 
comrades who are trying to get him to commit Harry Carey. So after being a kind of sexy romp for most of its runtime, it turns into a bloodbath at the end. Um, and it's a great movie. It's one that I've been fond of for some time. Uh, if there are any enterprising programmers out there, I don't know what the hell Patrick Tam's up to these days, but it's a cool career, particularly the first few films. Um, and yeah, that's probably the last thing I watched that wasn't Badlands. <laughs> I think the last thing I watched that wasn't one of these films was probably something I can't really talk about, I guess, because it's unofficially embargoed, but what the hell. It was the Coen Brothers' The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, um, which will be at the New York Film Festival this fall. It is um, something very special and something very strange and something that I expect will have a divisive response to. I think it's... Um, I think it's it's quite a grim film, and okay. it's it's definitely the Con Brothers movie for 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 today. Okay. <laughs> you know what bugs me about them is they don't care about their characters. Have you ever well, noticed you'll, that? You'll you'll enjoy the first character <laughs> in this film is called the misanthrope. <laughs> you'll enjoy that. I'm a humanist, and I don't like that they don't care about their characters. Topic for another podcast. Mm. Um, thank you very very much for being here. This was a great conversation and I'll see you both soon. Okay. Bye. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast with music by Greg Angi. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.